Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, open up to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Uh, As you're turning there, I have a simple question uh, to which to begin the sermon this morning, uh, which is this. As you were getting ready to come into church this morning, how are you feeling? Good? Amen. Hey, we're catching on. Amen. Yeah, feeling good? Okay. What about some of the rest of you? Where are you? Uh, here's, here's, where, here's, where I, here's where I'm going with this. We're in our series, right? Gospel, culture, the fabric of the church. And it dawns on me that many people across the country and across the world, for that matter, will gather in church houses like this. And I wonder, what do they bring with them? What feelings, what emotions were going through your mind, whether you were deciding late last night whether you would be here this morning or, or, or not? What, what emotions, what, what feelings do you feel when you know you're about to go to God's house? Um, I, can I be honest with you guys? <laughs> you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Pastor, can you? I hope so. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so oftentimes... Uh, Sunday morning, I, I don't want to be here. You're like, oh my gosh, this is the pastor? Yeah, yeah. So, so Sunday mornings, most times I, uh, I often uh, wake up thinking, ah, oh, man, here we go again. Who's going to be there? Who's not going to be there? What problems am I going to hear? Uh, this is just, a, just honestly, anxiety in my own life, knowing that I've got to open up the scriptures and say, and be a spiritual father for you here and say, thus saith the Lord. Realizing all the while I've got all these own sins in my own life. And I think, oh man, I don't know. Have you ever felt anxious before coming to church? Have you ever walked into church thinking, it feels like everyone else has it all together, but, but I'm struggling. Like maybe I should fix up my own problems before I get to church. You see, church is a place where it's okay to be real. So I wonder, what, what, what feelings do you feel as you were getting ready for church this morning? And again, we're continuing our, our series on gospel culture. Uh, last week, we started by looking at a, a missional culture, thinking through the words Moses gave in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where he spoke of how the people of God were supposed to hear and know that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, And from this knowledge, from understanding this, would flow then an uh, overwhelming response of love. The people of God were also supposed to be teaching them to their children diligently, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, talking with them whenever they're at home, teaching them at mealtime, teaching them when they're on their way, teaching them the things of God in the morning when they wake up and at bedtime when they go to sleep. And the sense of this is that the gospel culture is not something that is done by a means of a task, right? That's one of the main points of last week. It isn't something that you do on top of an already full plate, like, okay, get up in the morning, get the kids ready for school, feed them, make breakfast, Go to work and deal with the awful co-workers, which I have to deal with. Come home, help the kids with homework, fix dinner, pet the dog, roll on the floor with the kids, pet the dog again, get them in bed, spend some more time with the spouse, go to bed and think at the end of all that saying, oh man, 
I forgot I was supposed to live in the light of the gospel today. Or, or, or thinking, oh man, I, I didn't get my quiet time in this morning, so the Lord must think less of me. I know what I'll do. I'll get up extra early tomorrow, two hours earlier tomorrow, just to get that quiet time in. You see, this is the wrong way for us to view gospel culture. That is not what the gospel does for us. Like, like if, if you've come into church this morning thinking, I've got to have all these things figured out before I get to church. Listen, you've not fully understood the gospel. That's not what the gospel lays on us. But for so many of us, we view life through this type of lens, don't we? Well, I didn't tell anyone about Jesus today, so let me try to be better tomorrow. Get to the end of the day, a long day, and think, ah, oh, man, I've got to do all these things for Jesus because he did so much for me. It's all I can do to, to live for him. Ah, I didn't do it, so I'm sorry, Lord, I failed again. There is a real sense where the Lord will put on your heart things to do that will stretch you beyond where you're currently comfortable. This is merely called loving discipleship and sanctification. But that stretching, listen, will never, it will never be punitive or harsh, which is often the way we treat ourselves, is it not? It will always be gracious and kind because that is the type of father we have. And so last week, the main idea was that the mission of the church flows out of the culture of the church. Jesus said, go and make disciples. And that is our mission. But the way in which we accomplish that mission will largely be determined by the culture in which we create and find ourselves immersed in. Therefore, if we view our culture as, ah, Pastor said this week, I got to go make disciples. I'm going to work, get up and work hard to make disciples today out of a sense of duty and not out of a sense of love of what Christ has done for us. And we're operating under the wrong culture. Last week's message was really the, the, the end of a type of series on gospel culture because it's what gospel culture will look like in practice. And what I want to do in this morning in our time together is really zoom out, back up, in order to see what in the world I'm actually talking about. So look with me at Romans 15. Romans chapter 15, just one verse for our text this morning. Romans 15, if you're there, say amen. Need more time? Say hold up. Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. As I'm praying, brother, we just turn my mic down just a little bit. Father God, we thank you this morning that we serve you and not some other God, not some God of our imagination, but we serve loving, kind, and gracious Father. Father, may we see this morning uh, right doctrine and then understand how that would produce a people who love you and who love other people. So Father, I pray you would open our eyes to the text this morning. May your spirit work in and amongst our midst, uh, opening our eyes to see the glory and the truth of Jesus Christ this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Read it with me again. Romans 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Two things in this verse I want to spend our time looking at this morning. In order to understand how a gospel culture should be the fabric of the church. The first, Christ has welcomed us. 
The first, Christ has welcomed us. And the second, we welcome one another. Let's look at this first one. Christ has welcomed us. The flow of the book of Romans overall is pretty simple. Um, Once you zoom out and understand the parts and light of the whole, that's not to say that that, that it doesn't have a lot to say, right? It's jam-packed, full of deep, weighty, theological truths. But overall, if we zoom out and ask the Spirit what He wants us to see from the entirety of the book of Romans, it would be this. The glory of God is seen in a united church on mission that is humbled together under grace. You want to sum up the entire book of Romans into one sentence. It's that. The glory of God is seen in a church united on mission that is humbled together under grace. You say, well, pastor, I thought the book of Romans was justification by grace alone. It's that. It's in there. But in, in, in some... What's Paul saying all this for? The reason why Paul is writing this letter is so that we would see the glory of God in a united church on mission that is humbled together under grace. Many people approach the book of Romans as if it was meant for a defense of the Christian faith. And to be fair, it is by far the most elaborate description of the Christian life we have. But is that why Paul was writing to the church in Rome? Was he writing so that we might be better debaters when it comes to arguing for the depravity of man, which is just fancy words to say we're all busted up people? Is that why he was writing? Was Paul writing so that we could pull a few verses out here and there and quickly lead people along what's called the Romans road of salvation? All these are good things, by the way. However, if we stop there, then a lot of time... Uh, we, we, we misunderstand or aren't quite sure how the ending of the book of Romans actually fits in together with the whole. It becomes disconnected for us. But Paul was writing Romans and the Spirit has inspired the book of Romans for us today so that we know how we ought to live on mission together, being humbled under grace. You see, in Rome, the Emperor Claudius had forced the Jews to move out. He uh, had enough of the Jews in Rome. He kicked them all out. Now, at that time, there were Jewish uh, pe- people who were Jewish who had become Christian. However, in Roman government's eyes, they didn't really see the difference or the distinction. And so they, they forced all the Jews out of Rome. So what happened at that time is the, the, the church that was left in Rome were these Gentile Christians. Uh, people who had uh, known about God, but not about Jesus, not associated with Jewish but they had heard the good news and they put their faith in Christ. And so when the, when the Jews were forced out of the church and out of the city of Rome, all that was left was a Gentile church. Much like us here today, by the way. We're a Gentile church, if you will. But as Emperor Claudius died, the Jews began to return to Rome. It doesn't take much imagination to see how a Gentile church, as Jewish Christians coming into the church, how they're not quite sure how they're going to figure out all these tensions of doing life together. You can imagine it was pretty heated debates around what's true, what's appropriate to eat, what's acceptable to eat, what days do we worship on, what holy days do we observe. It was these types of tensions that were beginning to bubble up inside the church community that Paul sits down to write the book of Romans. So with that, let me give you a high-level overview of the book of Romans in four minutes. You're laughing because you don't think I can do it. In chapter 1, you have the opening where Paul says who he is 
and who he's representing. And he says in verse 7, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He thanks God for the faith that the Roman church has. And this is how we know that the rest of what he's getting ready to say, he's addressing to Christians, by the way. In the rest of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 4, Paul explains what the gospel is. He proves that all people, Jewish or Gentile, and everyone in between stand guilty before a holy God. Those who knew the law and commandments of God, guilty, Romans chapter 2. Uh, those who had no idea who God was, who Yahweh was, what his commandments was, still guilty, Romans chapter 1 and 3. He tells that although they had no way to pay for their sins, had no way to clean themselves up, that this Jesus dude, this Jesus the Messiah, had stepped in their place and took the wrath of God himself. Paul expounds in the first four chapters that the gospel of justification is by grace alone, through faith alone. That's the first opening. He's, he's building the argument that this Christian life, this Christian church thing that y'all got going on here in Rome is entirely a work of Jesus and God. Like it's just him. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he builds upon this foundation and teaches that the Christian, what the Christian life should look like. It's why he says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified, he teaches then, that we have peace with God through Jesus. He shows us that you and I have been made alive with Christ, are no longer bound to the power of sin in our lives anymore, and therefore we should give ourselves over to the power of the Spirit. And he ends this section with the famous Romans chapter 8, which shows us that, that we are more than conquerors, right, through Jesus who loved us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's Romans 5 through 8. In chapters 9 through 11, he builds off the climax of Romans chapter 8 to teach that God's grace has overflowed from the Jews to the Gentiles and then back again to the Jew. Paul teaches that this was God's wisdom before the foundation of the world to choose a people for himself and that his grace is for every ethnic group of people. That all people are invited in to accept this faith of Christ in Christ. Finally, in chapters 12 through 15, Paul takes everything he has been teaching them thus far and draws out the implications for them for how they should live together as a united church regardless of their backgrounds. He says that they should uh, present their bodies as living sacrifices to God and that they should continue to be transformed by the renewing of their mind to look more and more like Jesus. He teaches them that what the gospel uh, will mean for them in their life together as, as the church in chapter 16, he closes with personal greetings and a final instructions around watching out for those who would cause divisions. That's the entire book of Romans summed up for you in four minutes. Therefore, it's important for us to understand what's going on in Romans 15, verse 7 then. Look at it again with me. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you see it there, family? Christ has welcomed you. This is the argument on which Paul bases everything. And this is the glorious truth at the heart of the gospel. That God has looked down on you, a sinner. You with your faults and your failings. You with your anger and your temper. You with your gossip and your condescending spirit. You with your addictions and idolatry. And he has seen you. He knows who you are. 
I may not know the depths of your heart or how dark some of the thoughts you had this week are. But he does. He's seen you. He's seen you where you were. And that enough for most of us is a frightening thing, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves that that he truly knows our being inside and out, sees us for what we are. Even though he has seen us, though, he has not turned away. He has not shook his head in disgust. He's not rolled his eyes and thought, oh, here we go again. He has seen you and he's not walked away. And the question we should ask ourselves then is, why? The one who sees us for who we truly are, broken, busted people, has not walked away. Why? Why has he not forsaken us? Why does he see you and I and continue to see us? It's not because we're lovely or that there's anything within us that causes him to want to keep looking at us then what is it? Because when I look at myself, all I see is failure. When I look at myself, all I see are mistakes. When I look at myself, all I see are broken promises. Why does he then still look at us with such affection? Friend, he looks at you with tender affection because when he looks at you, he sees his son. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. You understand, that's why he looks at you. That's why he does not turn his face away in disgust at you. Well, pastor, why does he see Jesus? Paul answers for us right here, because Jesus has welcomed you. He's he's welcomed you. The word here has the meaning of drawing close, to to bringing in and, and holding tight. You can think of it as like a warm embrace. You see, when you believe the gospel, when you've put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, God the Father stops seeing you with all of your failings. He stops seeing you with all of your mistakes. He stops seeing you with all of your broken promises. Instead, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his son and family. He loves his son. He loves his son. Unbeliever, those of you who don't believe in Christ, I wonder, in a world which cannot seem to figure out what true love is, have you ever longed for something like this? Have you ever wondered if someone could see your deepest, darkest secrets, the thing that no one else knows about you, and wonder if you are still lovable? Only in Jesus. Only in Jesus, come to him. Come and accept his gift of salvation, which he freely offers you because there's a depth and an intimacy which you will find nowhere else. You see, when we come to the church, we should stop worrying about what it is we look like because the Lord has already seen you. He's loved you. He's accepted you. He's welcomed you in. We should stop trying to earn his loving kindness because we can't. That's what the gospel is. Christ has welcomed us. And this is, by the way, is the story of the entire scriptures. The entire scriptures speak about this one who will come, this Jesus who will save us. 
that you and I get brought into it, undeserving, get brought into the family of God with empty hands of faith, accepting the good news of Jesus and embracing his welcoming arms. If we stop there, if we stop there, if we view the gospel as merely come to Jesus so you can have right standing with God, we would have fixed our vertical problem, wouldn't we? The all-knowing, all-powerful, the one who created everything has loved us and uh, reconciled us and fixed us and saved us, made us right with him, justified us. We would be fixed vertically. And for many people, they stop there with the gospel. They say that this is the gospel. Come, love Jesus. And it's true, it is, but there's so much more. Look again with me in verse 7. You see, therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. As Christ welcomed you is the gospel, by the way. That this is what he's done. But Paul's entire point is this, is that therefore that we would then do it. The scriptures say that you and I should welcome each other. This is critically important for us to understand. The good news of the gospel is not abstract truth. You understand what I'm saying? Like The good news of the gospel does not hang in midair. But rather, it's connected to a people, to God's people. It's not just believe and be saved and that's it. So many in the church today miss this fact. They stop explaining what the gospel is and they fail to carry it through. To now what? Paul's answer to now what is welcome one another as Jesus did. As Christ welcomed you, therefore welcome one another. So, so, so how does Christ welcome you? Three things. Number one. He truly loves you. He truly loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just put up with you. He's not standing at an arm's length. He isn't acting like he has somewhere else to be. He truly, deeply, graciously loves you. That's how Christ welcomed you. He also welcomed you by making his way to you. One of the fascinating things that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is that it's the only story in which the creator becomes a man, lives amongst his creation, and dies for and on behalf of them. It's the only story where the offended party takes the place of the party doing the offense. It's the only story where you are not the starting point. The Bible says that you and I were not actually looking for God, by the way. Doesn't matter. You say, well, Pastor, I just showed up here looking for God. Listen, according to the scriptures, no, you aren't. Like those outside of Christ are not looking for God. They're not looking for Jesus. The Bible says we are God haters. We couldn't stand him. And yet he came looking for you. He came looking for you when you wanted nothing to do with him. This is how he welcomes you. He also welcomes you, number three, by, by humbling himself. Jesus, the Son of God, who was fully God and fully man, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and became a servant. Have you ever reflected on the fact that Jesus lived a servant's life? That he washed feet of the 12 men that he chose to be with him the night before he was, he was crucified, what do you find the Savior of the world doing? He's washing feet. Listen, including Judas, including Judas, the one who would betray him, Jesus did not say, ah, you know what, you step over here, you other 11 over here. No, 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 all 12 of them, he's washing their feet. 
This is what humbleness looks like. It looks like the one who created the feet in the mother's womb of these men would then wash them. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This means then that as we believe the truth of the gospel more and more, as we grow in our faith, there should be a parallel growth to our merely understanding the scriptures a parallel growth in the, the, the more that we understand this book, the more we should then look like Jesus and love one another. It means that you and I should truly love people. It means we just don't tolerate them. That we don't just put up with one another. We don't hold each other's at arm's length, but that we bring them in, we draw them close, we wrap our arms around them in a warm embrace. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. It means we don't just wait around either, hoping that others come and love us. You see, Paul's impetus here is that, that, that you would go and find other people to which to love as Jesus loved. Jesus, you, Jesus came looking for you when you were not looking for him. Therefore, if we're going to do that, we've got to go and look for other people who aren't looking for you. Not looking for your kindness, not looking for your grace. It means... That when you walk into this place every week, we just don't immediately make a beeline to our seats and wait until someone comes and loves on us. We should be looking, eyes up, for someone who we can make a beeline to, to love on. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. It also means we start to treat others' needs as more important than our own. We start to place our preferences lower than other people's preferences. We put other people's desires higher than our own desires. It means, practically, that we hold the door for one another. Like, like we hold the door. Can you imagine a community that truly understands this? If you come to the church and I'm out there at the church, I'm like, here, brother, you went first. And they're like, nah, nah, brother, <laughs> you went first. Like, nah, nah, I, I insist, you you see, in a community like that, a community which truly understands what Christ has really done for them is a community which truly loves and serves one another. And don't we all want to be around people like that? People who have such a love of Jesus in their lives that it naturally flows out to other people. Here's the, here's the danger. Here's the danger. I said this last week. We could be orthodox in our doctrine. Well, that means we can be orthodox in our, like we believe this book regardless of everyone outside this room believes it. Like we can say that, that's orthodox. Being orthodox, we, we're true to the scriptures, what they say, what they teach. And we can be true and we say, yep, we agree with that. You go look at our website, it says we believe this book. That can be true and you still not have a gospel culture. That's why I asked the question when we came in, what do you feel when you come into this place? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel nervous? Do you feel happy? Like, like the church should be a place we run to. When we sin, when we fail, the church is the place where we should come for help and comfort, to be reminded again that Jesus is not angry with us. That the Father has no more wrath for us. 
I can stand up here and say, we believe Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And if that never actually impacts the way in which I live my life, then the way I live my life would actually say that actually he doesn't really believe it. And if that's true on an individual level, it can be true on a massive church-wide level. We welcome one another as Jesus welcomes us. But notice, lastly, when a church begins to live out the gospel, they say they believe. Notice who gets the glory. The ending of that verse. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul's whole point in writing the book of Romans so that the church will understand that God is the one who gets glory. It's why at the end, in Romans chapter 4, he's talking about uh, if, 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 if Christ, at the end of chapter 3, if, if Christ is the one who has paid for our sins, if Christ is the one who has paid for our debt, what therefore remains of boasting? Answer, nothing. Nothing remains. For God alone gets the glory. Not you and I. Serving one another is not a platform to build ourselves up, but it continues to point to how good our God really is. I heard someone say on a podcast this week, he said, um, he was talking about humor and how Christians often like miss humor. Um, I don't know if that's true in your life. It's, I try to make it not true in my life. But they're talking about like uh, the, they said, what if we actually believe? Like, hold on, hold on to your chairs. What if we actually believe that when Jesus was on the cross and he says, it is finished, what if we actually believed it? Think about it. Like, what if we actually believed it, church? That I have nothing I need to do in order to finish anything Christ was already finished. I have nothing I need to earn. There's nothing I have to prove. There's nothing I have to be. Why? Because Christ has finished it all. You see, this is what frees us up to walk freely in the grace God has given us. This is what frees us up. It doesn't matter whether or not we have drums playing on the stage or not. Because you know what? Jesus said it's finished, y'all. And that's true. It's gloriously true. It's finished. Therefore, we can welcome one another whether or not we, we like the person or not. We can love one another whether we disagree with them on any number of issues. You read Romans chapter, let's flip back here, Romans chapter 14. Because this is the ending of the, Paul's whole argument here in Romans 15, right before he gets to the closing of the book. Romans 14, look at verse 1. As for one who is weak in faith, there it is again, welcome him. Not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God, listen, his reason, why do you accept people if they disagree with you over insignificant matters? God's welcomed them. And if God has welcomed them, who, who are you to unwelcome them. That's, his, that's the argument. Who are you to pass, there it says in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, Paul's entire argument rejoice uh, in the grace that God has given us. And this grace frees us, shows us how we live. Romans 5 through 8. 
Grace overflows from the Jews to the Gentiles, back to the Jews, 9 through 11. And then here's how we actually walk this out. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, to give your lives wholly to God, which is your reasonable sacrifice. Lastly, on this idea of God's the one who gets the glory. We all wished the world out there cared more about this book, don't we? We all, we all wish it. We want them to know the glory of the God that we serve from this book. We all wish the world out there would take seriously the commands of God and how he said we should live, don't we? We all wish that the world would turn and look to Jesus and be saved. But the reality is the world out there doesn't give a rip about your book. The world out there doesn't give a rip about your standards of morality. And listen, they never have. They never have. There's never been a golden age of Christianity ever. Ever. Have there been easier times for Christians? Sure, there's been times where society has been more in line and more encompassing and more uh, favorable to the truths of Christianity. However, even then, you had people merely uh, faking uh, hypocrisy, not really loving the Jesus of this book. You see, there hasn't been a golden time, and there's not a golden time for us now. You say, well, pastor, how do we get the world to see? How do we get the world to see God in all of his glory and see how gracious of a father he is and the grace that Jesus pours out upon us? How do we get him to do that, pastor? Welcome one another. As Jesus has welcomed you, you welcome one another for the, for the glory of God. The unbelieving world will look at a gospel culture and say, that's ridiculous. You mean to tell me nobody in that joint thinks more about themselves than other people? What if we just believed it to be true? What if we just believed the book? When Jesus says, it is finished, so I said uh, in the beginning, when I, most Sunday mornings, uh, uh, realizing the, the, the shortfallings of my own life, knowing I've got to stand up here, open the book, and say, thus saith the Lord, and point you all to Jesus. I had this anxiousness inside of me, if we're just being honest with each other. Most times I'm like, ah, maybe I should call off sick. Thought about it this morning. Listen, every Sunday, without fail, I come crawling in here, but by the time I leave, it's like I'm floating out of here. And you say, what, what changed, Pastor? I'm reminded again because you all love one another. You accept one another. You're humbled enough to love one another as Christ has loved us. Listen, this isn't a place where we have to clean ourselves up first, where we can not be known by one another. That's why I'm unashamed to stand up here and say, like, yeah, sometimes I don't want to be here at church. But I'm always glad after the fact. Always glad. I hope the same is true for you. This is what happens in a gospel culture. When we truly love one another, even if we disagree. This is what can happen in this church if we just simply believe the scripture and then live like it's true. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we long for community in which we can be fully ourselves, fully authentic, including all of our shortcomings, all of our failings, all of our fallings. 
And Lord, I pray that this week we would, we would be encouraged that we stand before a Father who loves us. That we stand accepted because of Jesus. We stand welcomed with open arms. Therefore, because of that, Lord, we can welcome one another. There's not a person in here who we shouldn't be able to hug around the neck and say, I love you and mean it. So, Father, I pray you would help us with this. Help us walk in this this type of community which knows and loves Christ, committed to living in community and then giving you all the glory. Father, it's by your spirit that, we can, that this can happen. It's only by your spirit that this happens. And so we pray for the move of the spirit in our midst that we would walk this kind of life. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the deacons to come.